At this point, you should be on the frame with a film strip title that says Oral Welcome to Oral Hygiene. It's the podcast where we talk about educational films, experimental, caught films, and interesting documentaries. This is Matt. Today I have joining us the host of the Aeon Bite radio podcast, getting into all things Gnostic, esoteric, and interesting. Hello, Miguel Connor. Hello. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming in today. Um, of course, today's uh, documentary, as, as I just kind of explained to you, is uh, just our, our jumping off point. But this is a Discovery Channel documentary from several years back called uh, Gnostic Gospels. And Miguel, uh, could you tell me like what the TV guide would say for this, basically? Oh, my God. I don't even know what to say. That was a <laughs> while ago, too. And it's this sort of... Uh sensationalistic view of these um apocryphal texts uh it even it cracks me up because you can tell when there's going to be a commercial because they're talking about this text and they go could this destroy christianity or rewrite what we think of christianity and then bang buy some soap <laughs> yeah and then you have a commercial then it starts like well they decided that this was uh the mainstream ish, this mainstream view is that was discovered. It's 300 years old and it wasn't written by this person or that. This Gnostic gospel is just, uh, it's fun, sensationalistic stuff, but um, it's a bit educational, that's for sure. But uh, yeah, it's just good, sensationalist stuff. Uh, I, I saw Marvin Meyer, he appears many times and it, it makes me sad because he was the. Uh, really one of the leading Gnostic scholars and he was one he was part of the National Geographic team that uh, worked and translated on the Gospel of Judas he was a professor at Chapman University and he got cancer and he's no longer with us so he left us at an early age and it's a pity because uh, he there are some issues with the Gospel of Judas some thought that they rushed it and they marketed completely wrong and they twisted some of the translations but all in all marvin meyer's work was very helpful in the field of gnosticism magical papyri and alternative christianity so it's a pity that he's it's sad he's no longer with us i did interview him for aeon bite many years ago on the gospel of judas but then he got sick so unfortunately he won't be back but glad i could honor him in some way yeah, one thing I I, th I think I heard someone else speaking recently when you're invited to something like uh you know this kind of documentary, ancient aliens, something like that. They really do want you to sound as you know crazy as possible. They don't want the balanced view. They want something, as you said, you know, sensationalistic. Yeah, they don't want people to turn the channel. They got to give them something. This could change Christianity. This shook the foundation of academia and society and all that. But a lot of this stuff was was already been known for years. It's not academia knew of the many gospels that were out there. 
even if you take the Nag Hammadi library out and the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Gospel of Judas, there are discoveries of apocryphal texts that church fathers kept a lot of these texts and you can quote them and you can find a lot of them in the Vatican and they are out there. And even the Catholic church has never really decried any of these works. They, they see it as historical documents. They give a, a snapshot of uh, early Christian culture and they're fine. Uh, other Protestant religions, but at the end of the day, it really comes down to faith. When I watch these documentaries, it cracks me up because I'm like, you know, no Christian has any faith should have this stuff challenged. Uh, obviously, I don't agree with the mainstream view of these uh, of Christianity. And uh, when it comes down to it, Christianity is waning, but uh, it ha there's a lot of reasons why it has. The discovery of the Gnostic Gospels and an interest in apocryphal texts and alternative Christianity has been a wound on Christianity, but they've been their worst enemies. The you know pedophile issues, uh, ab other abuses, not changing with the times, uh, being too oppressive to people, not uh, getting hit by uh, atheism and science in so many ways. And at the end of the day, Christian, as Joseph Campbell said, we need a new myth. The myth of Jesus was fine. It lasted for centuries, but it's just no longer holding. So have faith in Christianity, but see it as just, uh, it's, it's a vanishing religion. It might take a long time for it to vanish, but it is faltering. How do you feel about the, um, the idea of, you know, they kind of go by the zodiological ages, you know, with Pisces being the era of Christianity, the 2000 years or so before that sort of, you know, the, Maybe Judaism was a bigger thing before that, you know, it's what the ram, the ram, I guess, would be um, Judaism and going even farther back, you know, the Egyptian ideas maybe being the predominant religion before that. Um, all, all of this, of course, is speculation. We don't really know what was actually like people were what was on people's minds in 500 B.C., but but the idea that yeah, now, I mean, you know, we're course. going to Aquarius and, uh, you know, like it's time for a new God. Yeah, I think there's some val it's valid. I mean, the stars do affect us just like the moon affects the tides. There are planetary ener planetary energies, and I see it as something that affects us. And I mean, we are reaching the end of the Hindu Kali Yuga. So I think this is a changing of the age, but again, these ages change very slowly. It's uh, we're still at the very dawn of the age of Aquarius. So who knows what's going to happen? Well, yeah, just looking at um, when the Pisces age began, you know, there's quite a long overlap time there with uh, Jerusalem being sacked and basically destroyed. It's a few hundred years after that when Constantine is uh, uh, doing his thing, you know, a few more hundred years for Christianity to become more like what people, well, really a thousand plus years for Christianity to become what uh, people think it is now um i grew up in a episcopal church um it's relatively liberal i guess for for religion um i remember hearing whispers of the of the other books of the bible you know something that not being like you shouldn't do it just something of interest and um the last time i lived in the states was 2010 at that point in time yeah this documentary is pretty much what i would think of as um 
you know, Gnosticism, but watching it now, I'm like, oh, they don't mention the Demiurge. They don't mention Sophia. There's so much missing here. Yeah, that was kind of the way scholarship was back then. If you read uh, Elaine Pagel's huge bestseller, The Gnostic Gospels, and that came out, what, in the 80s? Sold millions of copies. Yeah. yeah, I mean, just a, a monumental bestseller. And you can add the Da Vinci Code to that, which is uh, hugely dependent on the Gnostic Gospels and Gnostic tradition. But in the Gnostic Gospel, she doesn't mention the Archons once. I think that was the, as sound, putting on my conspiracy theory hat, and it's not conspiracy because have even secular scholars have made this argument. A lot of individuals, and maybe Marvin Meyer was part of it, you discover these uh, alternative Christian gospels. They're very divine feminine centric. They seem to be, I wouldn't say egalitarian, but more anarchist that the groups, it doesn't matter who you are in this group, whether you're a woman or a slave or a noble, you can all be part of these little groups of Gnostic, uh, I don't want to call them churches, lodges, if you would. Uh, it has that Eastern flavor that was popular, that is popular in the West because the Gnostics believe in reincarnation and the voyage of the soul and the power of self-knowledge, all this good stuff. So it was attractive to many scholars and activists because it was like, hey, are you tired of Christianity? Look over here. We've got this alternative new agey Christianity that will work. And it will make Christianity survive more palatable to a more open-minded society or a society that had uh, a thirst for more mysticism and connections with the divine and altered, altered states of experience. So I see that they were trying to get that through. In fact, Karen King, who is uh, one of the great scholars of our time, but uh, she did great translations and books on the Gospel of Mary, the secret book of John. But she kind of got caught uh, accepting a forgery, the Gospel of Jesus's wife. There was a book written by it. And she herself sort of confesses that, what did she say once? History is not about facts, but about power struggles. And she thought with Gnosticism, she could throw this feminist agenda down the throat of society and her intentions were good this could give women more of a voice because that's what the gnostic gospels did but unfortunately like you said it sort of um kind of takes away or washes away the the really edgy counterculture part of the gnostics the archons the demiurge the resistance against matter uh the rebellion against uh, earthly institutions and so forth. But I think that's kind of, uh, that was a while back, probably at the time of this documentary, but things are, things are more honest today. Yeah. Cause uh, you know, the Gnosticism itself has its fair amount of uh, male, female equality with the um, priestess, things like that. Um, of course, there's the, the idea that Mary Magdalene was, Jesus's Yosef's whatever what, Yeshua whatever name we want to throw on but you know the actual partner there um I I, I think I was just yeah I was just reading uh, one of our guests and maybe you spoke to Von Gaud who was talking about him learning other esoteric 
methods, uh, you know, in those missing years before the, all the New Testament stuff. But um, going out with Thomas, Mary Magdalene, uh, learning these things, I think she mentioned Thomas as being a friend, although I've also seen Thomas as uh, mentioned as being like Jesus's twin brother in various places. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't exactly adhere to a historical Jesus. I guess it's possible. I think it's more of a myth. Um, but Thomas, Thomas, yeah. I mean, if you look at the Gospel of Thomas, probably the most popular of the Gnostic Gospels, it does start. He does start saying uh, this is written by Didymus Thomas. And it's an interesting interplay because Didymos in Greek means twin, Thomas in Hebrew means twin too. And he's having this dialogue of Thomas and Jesus, and you're wondering, is he the twin of Jesus? Are, are these two aspects of Jesus talking to each other, the, the lower part and the higher self, the Christ? And they're just having a conversation so that's uh, i think very uh, very possible when it comes to uh, thomas about the reality and then i mean in ancient times the idea of a lower self and a higher self the a daemon was very uh prevalent in esoteric circles traditional circles i mean socrates talked about having a daemon and talking to his daemon every day that could help him with anything even predicting the weather if he wanted to so that's the fascinating thing about Thomas. And <clears throat> there is literature, there are other gospels uh, attributed to Thomas. There was probably a Thomasine community. When you have all these gospels and after an apostle, it usually means there was one community that created or guarded these um, gospels. And, uh, and you wonder, well, it was probably a threat to orthodoxy because if you look at the gospel of John, that's where you get the doubting Thomas and where he's, oh my God, I don't believe you. And he has to go put his fingers in the wound of Christ and all that. And some have said the, the new Testament, one of his job is to marginalize these Gnostic characters. Like Thomas becomes doubting Thomas instead of a mystic or the, the, uh, an aspect of Jesus, Mary Magdalene becomes the, the sinner with the seven demons and so forth. So Simon Magus becomes the guy who uses magic and then betrays the apostles. So there are some have said there is sort of a propaganda in the new Testament to marginalize these Gnostic leaders. We, we meant, uh, talked about a while back in emails and I'm sitting here feeling like you are pretty much explaining the plot of fight club <laughs> yeah well that's yeah perfect example of the the daemon and the lower self the adalon as it was called in ancient greece and the whole yeah the whole movie is a conversation between two halves of themselves although if you read the sequel to fight club paul pollen polenic he changes the complete plot. He turns Tyler Durden into something really bad. He's the archetype of destruction. So, mm -hmm. and his idea is to simply destroy the world. But in the first novel and movie Fight Club, yeah, you have uh, a dichotomy, one character having a conversation. Well, it's like um, you, you talk to my co-host Luke from the other podcast, and he he refuses to read any of the uh, Dune sequels because he's like, I, I want to like Paul. <laughs> And the Dune read, sequels? There's sequel books to Dune. Yeah, he yeah, loves, I've read them all. Dune. They're all good. 
No, they no, are all good. good, but yeah, Paul Atreides just, you know, he his demons take over eventually <laughs> in mm. full force. So uh, he's like, no, I want to I want to I want to enjoy the, uh, you know, the the straight up Joseph Campbell hero, Paul, you know, but yeah, uh, <laughs> meet, new, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Once you become you take the place of power, power will corrupt you to some extent, just the way it is. I threw this in my notes and I'm kind of curious. Um, you know, watching this made me think of it the way they're explaining biblical things and Roman things. And I've heard it thrown around a few uh, times about Flamenco's idea of, you know, around a millennium artificially created. Have, have you ever heard that concept? Yeah, I interviewed a um, someone on it on this very topic. And it's interesting how... Uh, I can't remember most, well, let me recollect it, uh, how if you look at when Egyptians would finish a pyramid, they would write down, on this day, the stars was here, and Virgo was there, and the moon was there. That's how they track time, and this is something that people did throughout history. And uh, Fomenko makes the argument, if you look at ancient Egyptian times, when they're talking about where the stars are, it's actually thousands of years closer to us if we go by the stars. And, and there's other evidence of that, that history is a lot more condensed than we have been thought. I don't, I don't buy it. It's an interesting theory. Uh, I haven't gone that, down that rabbit hole fully. Um, I think uh, probably the best thing I always advise people is, yeah, listen to the argument and then listen to the counter arguments and then let it simmer and then decide which way you want to go. But uh, it's not something I've really given that much energy to. Yeah, I mean, I basically go with I don't believe in anything. So I get to think about everything. Right. Um, but for some reason, watching this documentary really had me like kind of thinking, what if this was only about a thousand years ago and the change to what is more, you know, Catholicism was only about 700 years ago, you know? And um, like the way they explain it actually works better on that thousand year timeline. Uh, just it seemed it's, it's just like that. I think the documentary kind of suggested like, you know, for about a thousand years, nothing happened. <laughs> yeah, but there's so much, I mean, ways you can attack this. What about the historical records of the East? What about there are families and traditions that have lineages, have been documenting the stuff? I mean, then you get into an area where a cover-up would be hard, very hard to perform, especially when you include other cultures, Africa, Asia, and other things. So I don't know. Uh, again, I'd have to look at both sides of the arguments, but personally, I doubt it's true. No, yeah, I, it's it's again you know extraordinary claims uh require extraordinary evidence and yeah we don't have much of that but there's not so much evidence about a whole lot of history i guess um so uh we didn't really talk about this the first time we podcasted i think but what was your trip sort of into gnosticism because i i know you didn't start there and I, I believe you said you went through a a few different phases of uh focus on different religions yeah, it was just uh, trying different religions and never being satisfied with the bigger questions of life. Why is there suffering? Why is there evil? What's the afterlife like? Uh, you know, same questions that seekers are always looking and 
the different religions attempt to, to answer and Gnosticism just fit me. It just made sense. Um, there wasn't a, sort of a, a con, you know, bright light conversion. Aha. I mean, when some people ask me, well, what was your first moments of Gnosis? I always say, well, being a kid and seeing a dead bird on the sidewalk, I mean, going, what the fuck is this? I mean, poor bird. Is this life? This is life, right? Dead birds on the sidewalk. I'm a kid. There's something wrong with the world and sort of going through life and saying, there is something kind of off about this reality. Just doesn't fit together right. Like there's something wrong. What Morpheus tells me in the Matrix, you know, there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there like a splinter in your mind driving you mad. And Gnosticism sort of uh, answered the questions, uh, really explained to me how insane I am, how, pro how programmed I am, and offered the solutions to deprogram uh, myself and really experience reality in its fullness. I was talking to a... Uh, uh sometimes co-host of the show just before coming on and i actually tried to get him to call in but he's, he's got to go to the garden shop or something but <laughs> he he gave me this question which I, I think what you said is a good lead in for that um he just wanted to know and he prefaced it with saying maybe it's a stupid question but how does gnosticism affect your worldview you know what's happening now what you see on on fox news or cnn or the bbc um him being strengthens it yeah, it just strengthens it. I mean, it's just a whole lot of digital information bullshit. It's uh, all this uh, distractions and programming and other forms of propaganda. I mean, and then you add uh, our consumer society, the religion still working, and it seems it's all built to either suppress our consciousness, manipulate our consciousness, distract us from the bigger picture, uh, torture us in some way, not allow us to think or search on our own. I mean, it's, uh, I think that's a pretty obvious uh, observation on my part. I mean, mass media, politics, social media, internet, I mean, it's all one big hologram to keep us away from the real reality. And I think most of us probably feel that deep down inside. And us speakers or people who are red pill are just trying to uh, peer around the veil to see who is the man behind the curtain. I, um, you know, I, I tend to, I, I like to CNN most mornings, uh, the, the website, not the station itself. Not to get I'm sorry. The news. I'm sorry. You're doing this to yourself. No, no, I'm gonna. I'm about to explain why I'm doing this. Right. I just want to see what they're saying today. Mm. <laughs> if they're yeah, saying what lies are coming up. Of, yeah. If they're saying something very strongly, I'll start jumping around to other websites where I know they have very different views, just to see what's being said. But yesterday, it just caught my eye. So it's like, okay, I'm. I'm actually going to read this, right? And it was just talking about a um. A town, I think it's on the in the boot heel of Italy that is trying to revive its tourism and all of that. And then had a, a couple paragraphs on um, all the underground chambers. The uh, God, there's a good name for that that it's escaping me, but uh, I thought it was interesting. You know, basically where you would go in a Mithras cult to kind of you know 
yeah uh, catacombs or whatever you call those yeah 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 and um and uh, again i was like man those might have been like early gnostic haunts too this this was the greek um capital when when greek was actually you know uh, greece was actually expanding into the mediterranean uh before rome really took over right so uh all that i was like that's kind of interesting especially in light of uh talking about this today just and they had some photos i'm like yeah you go down there i could kind of think about what it smelled like uh for me i don't know i think my strongest sense is smell so <laughs> yeah that, that's pretty was pretty common for mystery religions and that definitely included gnosticism and even christianity when it first started uh these caverns, uh, they offer privacy uh, and, uh, the, again, myth, the cult of Mithra certainly like their caverns. They, uh, they provide privacy, silence, and in many of these rituals, regardless if it's Mithraism, Gnosticism, uh, the, the Eleusinian mysteries, uh, part of the ritual is you go down into Hades or you go down into yourself. And you are supposed to meet these demons or dark gods, or in some, you're supposed to go and rescue Persephone down and encounter Hades or Osiris. So the, uh, you're supposed to die to yourself and die to the world in a metaphoric, ritualistic way, and then come out as a new transformed being. Jesus, of course, is another great example. He dies and he goes down to hell for three days. And uh, so caverns were a very good, you might say, movie set for these mystery religions to reenact that first part of uh, the ritual, which is dying to yourself and going underground into hell and then being transformed into a new being. So I'll throw this at you. I found it last year and I was like, I need to wait until winter just to avoid the spiders and the bugs. Uh, now it's summer again, so I got to wait a few months. But I found it's, it's surrounded by relatively low rent apartment blocks, but it's a very old looking mound. This is a, in Japan, right? A very old looking mound. And there's a chamber inside. There's a, there, there's a door with a lock, but you can easily cop it at midnight if you wanted to. And I was like, I wonder... I feel like I should go in there and like do something. <laughs> uh, if you if you found the the chamber almost next door, what what would you suggest? Man, I can't tell you what to do. You're just gonna <laughs> have to go with your gut. Well, That's I'd probably it. go in and do my regular thing, but yeah, um, I just don't want to get crawled around by on spiders. So I'm definitely gonna wait for winter for that one. But because uh, <laughs> it's I uh, love spiders. It, but yeah, it is in. Japan's weird. Like, um, there's another very large mound nearby, which is now it's part of a gardening store, but it clearly was somebody's earth pyramid at some point in time. <laughs> um, we, we hear about the keystone, uh, graves. Are you familiar with those? No, these are ancient graves in Japan that sort of look a little bit like an ankh or look a little bit like a keystone. And I, I actually, I thought they were all in, um, what they call it, Eastern Japan, which I, I guess you'd think of as South, but then my daughter's elementary school went on a class trip to one about, you know, 10 kilometers away. So I was like, well, we, we have those here too. But uh, that, that's interesting just for the imagery because they do have sort of an onk look to them. Hmm, interesting. Um, something that's totally not this documentary, I, I guess a little more hardcore Gnosticism. Um, 
and and you've re referenced it a little bit uh, more in terms of the digital media, but the idea of the universe being against us. I guess that's the one thing in Gnosticism that doesn't doesn't sit well with me. Yeah, well, unfortunately, it's probably true. And uh, again, you have to uh, even the Gnostics weren't, you might say, just inventing stuff. I mean, the idea of the stars and the planets controlling our fates, setting our fate or the gods having our fate set. That's a very Hellenistic viewpoint. And uh, you find that in many traditions beyond Gnosticism, Neoplatonism, Middle Platonism and others. Uh, the thing is that the Gnostics dialed it up to 11 and <clears throat> they decided or um, took the stance that it was wrong, that we should not be bound by fate, that we should be able to uh, break fate and uh, create our own destinies. Unlike the ancient heroes like Oedipus or Hercules or others. And uh they saw the universe ultimately as a place where we are being fed on. Why were we trapped here? Why are we trapped in fate? Where well, we must have something valuable or we must be slaves to the gods or the stellar lords. So the Gnostics weren't changing. They were changing. There was just, as they say, dialing it up to 11. But in ancient times, yeah, fate was definitely something that you cannot avoid. And therefore, you cannot avoid what the universe wanted to do with you. As simple as that. Uh, as scholars have said, uh, the idea of free will was kind of invented by the Christians. And by invented is they were the one of the first people to say, wait a second. Is there a force in the universe that can liberate us uh, if I have faith in Jesus, then the stars and everything doesn't matter. And I have this, I can make different choices than what the universe wants me to be and go somewhere else after I die, instead of just being reincarnated. And the Gnostics were kind of similar to that, but I understand them. It's hard to think that we are in some sort of prison or that we are trapped. I understand most of humanity cannot accept it or still assumes that this universe is good and that's fine. But I, again, this is why we are in the state we are. I have two responses. One is mildly stupid and one is hopefully smarter. The first is just uh, last week's uh, guest podcast was this is spinal tap. So here we are dialing up to 11 again, just kind of, yeah, yeah. kind of cool. The other one I wanted to, uh, I, kind of trail off from your last thought into is um the gnostic perspective on a near-death experience or a past life idea um let's, let's start with the past life um would the gnostic viewpoint go with a past life or the more christian like you know one life and done perspective our reincarnation for sure yeah a majority there might be a few that didn't but for the most part, they really adhere to the Greco-Roman idea of reincarnation. Are they looking at that like a curse, like the trap? Are they looking at like Earth as yes. a school and we're learning? So they're not not they same would not as the Buddhists. The Buddha, like the yeah, the Buddhists think reincarnation is an abomination. It must be vanquished at all times. The Gnostics would agree. I mean, think about it eternal forgetfulness it's like i you and i are going to live this life in the next life we ain't going to know shit and that's unfair and or maybe when we advance 
we might remember, but for the most part, it's just eternal. It's it's worse than hell when you think about it. Wiping out our memories. What's the point? <laughs> um, so is there kind of a version of the uh, I, I should remember because the Steely Dan named the song after the but but uh, do you know what I'm saying? The 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 person who is enter nirvana and comes back to take everyone else with them oh yeah the bodhisattva yeah i mean gnosticism and buddhism tend to be almost very parallel it's almost like they might have started at the same time because yeah and in, in buddhism you got the bodhisattva and the gnostics always contended if you take these flights these astral flights and you reach the supreme consciousness beyond the stars and beyond the universe it's not spiritual bypassing. It's not, oh, I'm just going to become part of this oneness and be in bliss or whatever. But uh, you would come back and be transformed into what is what does the gospel of Philip say? Uh, you will be, I saw Christ, I became Christ. The resurrection happens in this lifetime, not after we die. And you would be, yeah, exactly, a sort of Christian bodhisattva. Your duty would be now to be Morpheus, to try to wake others up and help them wake up to their divine nature and to the reality of this world where they can uh, break free from the chains of uh, karma, fate, and all the programming around us. And um, then the other one I, I thought would be cool to get the perspective on would be sort of the, uh, the NDE, the near-death experience, which Gnosticism would obviously have a sort of different take on than say the new agers or you know uh, a um a medical doctor <laughs> yeah i mean i don't i mean when they were doing their astral flights or whatever you want to call them uh, again it was almost like you started the ritual dying again in the caves uh becoming completely quiet uh, probably some sort of alter state of uh consciousness inducing and theogen and so again you you did this reenactment where you die where you went down to hades or hell and then you take the flight up that uh, that astral flight through the spheres to make contact with the alien god so it was kind of a self-induced nde and uh and obviously you well obviously you had to take these magical words or passwords because on your way up you would be um you would meet the archons the the beings that control the universe and you had to give them these magical words or passwords to get through each dimension up until you left the universe and that's not that uncommon you find this in other traditions the Merkabah jews and their chariot flights up to the throne of god had to understand who the angels were that ruled each of the heavens so they could get past this is a a rich broad tradition in ancient times and it is sort of a like you said it's it's an nde and i know i don't know if you've heard of father malachi um he's considered the world's leading exorcist and he always said in his writings that um, if you if you die and you see the tunnel of light, never go to the tunnel of light. It's a trap because uh, 
that's what Paul says in the New Testament. Uh, Lucifer appears as an angel of light. In other words, the archons have set a trap for any soul that tries to leave this world. And the best trap is to fool them. So if you go to the tunnel of light, you're going to go either right back to Earth or, or somewhere even worse. Well, yeah, there's, uh, of course, the Egyptian Book of the Dead has all of its instructions on how to, to pass through. Yeah, that's where they all got it from. Yeah. Meaning. The Tibetan one and the idea of the bardos. Um, mm -hmm. we'll, we'll see how lucid I am at, at the moment. There's a light to think about. But my thought is, well, maybe it's time to try that 15 minute basic meditation I have, you know, and then after the 15 minutes or whatever, who knows, maybe that's an eternity on its own, especially if you start meditating. But <laughs> yeah, but uh, we'll see what happens. Um, and, and that does. You know, my I've had a, a little bit of experience with the the lucid dreams, which um, I don't know if that's a similar experience or if that's a more internalized one. Um, the idea of the ND and going and experiencing the archons almost sounds like not that there really is an internal or external, but experience something outside yourself. For a lucid dream, maybe that's more experiencing something inside yourself. Yeah, I haven't really, that's one thing I haven't practiced. I do dream journaling and others, but I haven't done lucid dreamings because I'd rather my soul tell me what I need instead of having to control it. Uh, I think my soul is connected to eternity. It has all the answers. It has what, I, so I'm not too worried about lucid dreaming. And some have said the archons are just our resistance to the divine and are clinging to the material world. So that's what the entire process is. Once we let go of the material world and our egoic desires and all the silly trauma of our past that we cling on to, the archons simply turn to angels and they'll light up the path to our soul or to heaven. And, and I'm not a Tibetan dream master. This maybe happens twice a year and usually takes a fair amount of work to induce. But uh, <laughs> I have found that the very vivid dream that is not lucid is uh, like I sort of like made the dream happen, but it's not lucid. And I do find those to actually be the most satisfying ones to just absolutely allow yourself to go with the flow, but remember it all. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes in lucid experiences, it becomes like, stupid or i'm like yeah yeah like you said it's like well, what am i gonna do now you know uh, the last time i went completely lucid i just started paying wow there's a lot, so much detail in this dream look at the faucet my brain's making all of that reflection that's cool you know which isn't that i mean it's cool but it's not particularly enlightening <laughs> well maybe your dream self is making fun of you right now is look at this idiot. he thinks it's real but he's the one who's in the dream world i'm the one who's in the true reality yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I almost hope that's right. Um, you know, I, I've been a, a profound asshole at different parts of, of my life, but uh, somewhere I, I always heard some voice uh, suggesting a good path to take. Uh, and I can even look at a few times where I ignored it and uh, it, it wasn't a good idea. So, <laughs> you know, trust, trust your own intuition is, is important, I suppose. Amen. Amen. But, but, and uh, again, I'm not coming at this from a, a land of belief, but how do, how do you know you're not listening to the tiny voice of an archon? You don't. <laughs> you don't. At the end of the day, is uh, I could have just completely fooled myself, and I am just making things far worse. I mean, that was, uh, 
That was what uh, Descartes famously said. Yeah, what I don't know if you've heard of Descartes' demon. He was trying to change our paradigm, how we study science and empirical evidence and all that. And he started with, you know, maybe everything I, around me is an illusion. I am trapped by this demon. This demon has me tied up and the entire world is an illusion. Uh, my body is now even an illusion and everything is a complete lie. I've just been duped. But so he started with, okay, I think therefore I am. I'll start right there. I know I exist and that I am conscious and I'll just start prodding, prodding the waters or testing things from then on. So, uh, that's it's always a good place to start that everything is a lie everything you've been told is a lie you are probably a fraud i'm a fraud and then just start baby steps out there to see what is out there because at the same time you're also uh deprogramming yourself from so much oh yeah we're 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 all frauds you know living in a samsara or the illusion or whatever so <laughs> yeah yeah um that's for sure the matrix the simulation whatever you want to call it i mean one important thing about the matrix is once you get out of the matrix it's one is probably it's just another matrix isn't it and and that one kind of sucks harder you know you want to enjoy possible yeah you want to enjoy that stake in the matrix right (laughs) Um, that's a decision you got to make do you want (laughs) to keep going through the levels of reality or and at least be satisfied that you can have a clean conscience that you know the truth or do you want to go and eat that steak and take them after you take the blue pill yeah if you're i don't know i guess if you've reached a certain amount of enlightenment you can you can face the uh killer squid robots attacking you (laughs) (laughs) but uh i I guess i was about it's not a flaw with those movies i I, yeah those sequels you know it's like i I do have a love-hate relationship with them they're it was like so many interesting ideas and greatly executed in great ways, but still at the same time, a bit of a mishmash, I suppose. <laughs> I think I agree with you. I think they got uh, very metaphysically excited to throw all these different concepts from different traditions. So, and they went for it for better or worse. I mean, I don't think you definitely didn't need a movie after the matrix. I think they sort of refined it somewhat with a uh, cloud atlas. If you've come across that, that's a, I guess, more mature thought of those uh, concepts. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's a great exposition on reincarnation and how we're all bound together by these karmic forces. Uh, it's a, I want to say it's a great movie. I think it's aged well. But I think Tom Hanks and Haley Berry were in over their heads. In <laughs> over, you know what I mean? They just couldn't handle all these roles. It was too, they, they needed stronger actors. But obviously, at the time, Tom Hanks and Haley Berry would put seats in the movie theater. But I think other actors would have been better. In fact, the really memorable scenes, like with Sumi and others, uh, those are not Tom Hanks or Haley Berry. It's it's good actors putting on good performances with good lines. Yeah, we um actually did cover that movie on my other podcast. We we talked to Gordon White about that. And I, when um it was interesting. Oh, Gordon loves that movie. Got it. No, yeah, yeah. When I said movie. I said reincarnation, and he's like, no, it's the magical approach to life. And it turned out we sort of did agree because I have a somewhat different view on reincarnation. But I just thought it was 
kind of interesting that yeah most people watch it and would instantly go reincarnation but um then you can also have a more you know magical look yeah of course reincarnation is it's a multi-dimensional field there's many theories uh some yeah there's so many theories of reincarnation of course you can just talk about manifestation these souls that manifest at different times throughout history but it's still the you know it's still the same soul just holographically projected so yeah it's it's a complex idea but you know reincarnation just works for me yeah yeah um and when we did that i sort of explained my thought that um I'll throw this one on you and see see how it takes. I, I think it might actually kind of kind of a Gnostic perspective, probably more more a little more Eastern than that. But um, the idea being that this really is the only one hundred percent life where you are Miguel Connor, I'm Matt Comages, so on. Um, so everything, everybody is some percentage of reincarnation of you. Uh, the what you would consider a past life would be like ninety nine point nine nine percent hits but still missing just just a little bit that makes you you whereas you know a rock uh maybe we share like three percent or something but there is some connection obviously yeah yeah i think that's a good idea that's a or it's a sound idea yeah which uh that, that one just I mean, i'm sure it's someone's come up with that in a very well-written you know book or scripture and or, or something like that but that one did just kind of pop in my head one morning and i've been running with it so <laughs> yeah i mean if we go Jungian, there is a collective unconscious and we all draw information from there or it could be memories or archetypes uh everything else and dna could be just a transference of information so not only do i hold information of all my ancestors but at one time there was only a few people interbreeding so i my DNA holds information of all of humanity in your DNA. So uh, we still don't know a lot. Let's put it that way. No, that's what, if, again, if uh, you knew everything, there, there'd, be, there'd be no point. Um, mm -hmm. Well, wow, wow, this question came up in an office meeting on Friday. That's trippy. It was before we had like formally started. I, I think that, you know, we're English teachers. So I think it started off as a, uh, what does this mean? What does this mean? But uh then it was just in the middle of a uh, suit and tie, although it's summer, he didn't have suit and ties. But uh, the, the question is, would you prefer to be, you know, omniscient or omnipotent? <laughs> you only get hmm. one. <laughs> you can know everything omniscient. and be all powerful. Yeah, omniscient. But now you're lacking the power. So it's or maybe even a Cassandra complex there, you know, because you know everything, but you can only do what you can do. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but knowledge is power. You can always find a way to change things. True, where um, the, I, I think we also touched on the idea that the omnipotent person would be making um, really horrible mistakes all the time, so. Yeah, 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 more damage than good at the end of the day. If you don't have wisdom, that's, well, again, that's a whole Gnostic idea. Wisdom has fallen and we must restore because we are at the hands of a omnipotent sky god and that's not going very well um i was just actually watching a few nights ago i, I it, you'd have to be a pretty hardcore trekkie to probably get to what i'm talking about but it was an episode of star trek voyager which is the year of hell and uh, the basic idea is there's a time ship that exists outside of time 
and their civilization has had some horrible things. So they're trying to change the timelines by erasing a species, adding one, playing God with their particular part of the galaxy. Uh, the guy in charge, he just wants to bring back the colony that um, you know his wife was on that's vanished from time. And no matter what he does, it never gets to the 100%. That colony is sometimes the only thing not recreated. So he just keeps changing the timelines, keeps playing God. It's, uh, again, being uh, omnipotent with, with very little knowledge. Uh. Uh, trying to do complex calculations that are inevitably impossible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you need that wisdom. Simple as that, or else it's just mechanistic. <laughs> Um, I guess we'll, we'll come running to the end here, but is there anything else, uh, just getting back to the documentary that, uh, you're like, Oh, it's kind of cool. The discovery channel actually touched on that or, or something that really pissed you off. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, and I can't even get angry cause what's the point, but a problem in a, in both occultism and esoteric circles is people assume that Constantine came around and the hammer fell and that is not true Constantine and even the bishops at the time really didn't have much to do with the Bible and you know the Orthodox Church already kind of was settling on a Bible and it didn't get bad for the Gnostics after Const right at when during Constantine's rule it didn't even get bad for the pagans it was you know, the, the rise of Christianity was more piecemeal and it was in stages. In fact, some of the Gnostics actually did better under Constantine than before because they said, we are Christians. And so they, they could breathe a little easier and preach uh, more openly or talk to people more openly. So that's the thing I wish people would get over i mean it wasn't until later obviously there would eventually would be the destruction of the classic period and paganism and the gnostics would be suppressed and so forth but that came generations after that but somehow people in our circles have made constantine into this huge devil that changed the world and it's not it's a little bit more subtle than that yeah, I just I read a book a few months ago. What's it called? Like maybe the how Christianity took over the world, the miracle of Christianity. I, I don't remember exactly, but it was trying to do a historical perspective of how Christianity took hold, starting with, you know, Paul as basically a roving preacher, um, moving on to Constantine, you know, uh, growing up in a setting where his mother, I think it was his mother, was very interested, somewhat involved with Christianity. So it was just a flavor he grew up with. And um, and at yeah. that point in time, it was just like, hey, this I can actually make pretty good use of this now. Him knowing yeah. very little about Christianity at the time and, and learning more as he got older, but, um, you know, always more as a as a political tool, not even like a system of control, but just how to navigate the, uh, you know, Roman politics. Uh, the book also mentioning that after Constantine, we flip flop back and forth a few times. It's not like he turned on a switch and the Roman empire was straight up Christian. No. There was a, there were pagan emperors that followed him. Some that were like mildly, uh, you know, mildly interested. And in, uh, I, I guess it's Justinian and, you know, the, the popes where it really uh, gets its heels in. 
Yeah, it was an incremental frog in boiling water kind of thing. And yes, eventually Rome fell a few, a couple hundred years later and the Byzantine Empire, except for Julian, rolled the dice with being a Christian empire, the Eastern Roman Empire. And uh, the Catholic Church and sort of uh, rose out of the ashes of the Western Empire slowly. I mean, people, as if you talk to scholars, the idea of going to church and going to confession and, you know, when the idea of how Catholicism or was prevalent in your life that had control, that didn't happen until probably the 11th, 12th, 13th century. It was very loose. It was more like a whole bunch of franchises. I mean, the church really didn't uh, coalesce its power until it started the, uh, inquisition against the cathar and the crusades and all that that's when it became truly a powerhouse but before that for the middle ages it was a sort of a loose confederacy of churches priests could, priests could get married you didn't have to go to church that often and uh, that's how it was i mean obviously the byzantine empire and down in constantinople that was a different uh that was a different animal, but again, it's a different side of, uh, of, of the continent. Actually, the franchise idea is interesting because uh, Japan sort of does roll on that. Um, I live in Nagano. We have a large, uh, well, they rebuilt it several times, but uh, Zenkoji. It's uh, been a functioning temple for about 1,500 years, but it franchises. That's the main temple. There are other smaller temples, uh, you know, they could be anywhere in Japan, but they're mostly focused around here that, and you can usually tell by sight, it has the similar architectural features, things like that. But these are sort of like franchise temples. They, they're part of this main temple. I lived in a different city when I first came to Japan. They had a different main temple and um, you would find franchises of that around. About 30 miles away was another one. So it was interesting living there. That's a Tochigi for folks that have Japanese uh, geographical knowledge. But you would sometimes, you know, you'd find kind of not, they weren't competing, but, you know, you'd find this weird overlap where there'd be like one here and one there, and you could tell what their affiliation was. You know, it's the difference between a, a McDonald's and a Burger King, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know about there. Um, but it, it is a little nicer, I think, than the, you know, um, full tooth aggressive forms of, of Christianity. So <laughs> um, I, I haven't been to my parents church for 10 years and I don't really have any urge to go. But, uh, <laughs> you know, at least I feel like, well, at least it's a relatively inclusive part of Christianity. They don't yell at people. They've had gay priests and women priests for decades now. Yeah. So. I'm like, I, I, don't, I don't feel bad coming from that background. Uh, there were a few years where I was like, well, if someone made me choose a religion, I guess I'd go to Zen Buddhism now because I live in Japan. And now I'm like, well, man, I've sat around at Zen Buddhist temples so much and meditated at them so much. Does that like officially make one? Because I've never actually talked to, you know, a Zen Buddhist priest or anything like that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I miss church. I, I love going to church, any church. I like going anywhere where that you can get an egregore. <laughs> and connect with the energies of those seeking God. I don't think that is. And, I think um, human beings are just trying to figure things out. And uh, I, I guess I'll go ahead. And, uh, Egregore is the uh, the collective creation of a, a being, basically. 
we all believe it so it becomes real am, am i right on that yeah it's sort of a, a psychic entity created by a group's energy psychic energy something electromagnetic energy who is uh quasi independent and uh can do the deeds of the group but an egregore can also seem like a a protective thing too like uh when i go to aa meetings and i haven't been a while because of the whatever happened in 2020 but uh i understand when they would talk about the fellowship because if you're in the group you can almost feel this energy flowing through this protective energy when i first sobered up i was like man i don't know if i'm gonna relapse on drugs but at least in that aa i felt comfort i felt this energy the egregore the egregore isn't just like the psychic like a tulpa that's gonna you know go do your bidding but it's also that it can protect the group and act as a facilitator to a higher dimension so that's why i like churches or mosques or like you at a temple because if you meditate the egregore can be there to help you out and open your own channels yeah just uh i was actually recording a podcast and we were kind of talking about you know the idea of talking to trees he's like did you talk to that tree i was like no i didn't talk to that one but i talked to the one behind us and he says oh that one has a skirt on it i could see why <laughs> that that being the um the kind of paper thing around a, a tree in japan uh, right, right cross cross pattern thing that we get there um i think our time is wrapping up but um you know if, if people got their minds blown here they'll get your minds even more blown on the uh aeon bite podcast can you tell people a bit about that yeah just uh the website is the god above god.com uh probably the best thing if they just want to go to uh their search bar or alexa voiceover or whatever and just uh, type or say aeon a-e-o-n uh not the traditional uh spelling and bite is b-y-t-e so uh, do that and you'll see my homepage, thegodabovegod.com. And I've got podcasts, books, articles, videos, all uh, a heretical treasure trove of Gnostic ideas, philosophy, and aesthetics. You can contact me there or follow me on social, but it's all there. Ruby, and uh, I would definitely suggest people listen to that podcast, but at a time when they can give it their 100% attention, because, yeah, you, you get deep on that one. So <laughs> uh, this one is oral hygiene. We're on Facebook, Twitter, all of that. I also podcast sci-fi movies and some folks that are not me podcast about video games like Pokemon and Monster Hunter. That is all under the Patreon umbrella of Podcastio podcastius so uh yeah go. it's been it's been good talking to you here because we did the truman show in the past and that was a lot of fun but we sort of had the movie tether so it's kind of nice just to let her rip into uh whatever fields you know i i was i, I sometimes say i podcast uh to directly face social anxiety and today i was like man i'm not quite sure what i'm gonna ask but i'm, I'm sure something's gonna come up so it seems to have worked out well <laughs> Worked out fine. Thanks for having me on. Did you advance the film strip? Are you on the final page? 
well done.